Welcome, everybody, to another version, edition of We Talk Photo. This is a podcast that John Peterson and I do, uh, all things photography, uh, sometimes some other things, but mostly photography. Yeah. Yeah, whatever. And John is down in Portland. John, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Jack. Happy to be here. It's 105. This day's flying. It's uh, afternoon here on the West Coast, and today we have an extremely special guest as a dear friend, uh, Michael Gordon. Goes by Michael E. Gordon. I look at this on his website, and I'm saying, Michael E. Gordon? This is Michael. He likes to smoke cigars and take fantastic images, which is so affordable. Anyway, Michael, thank you so much for taking some time to be here. Thank you, Jack and John, for inviting me. I appreciate it. And hey, I have an explanation for the E when you're when you want to hear it. Let's have yeah. it. Let's do it. <laughs> well, in fact, uh, you know, uh, I think uh, Google will return something like five billion results if you remove the E from Michael Gordon. <laughs> but there are uh, notable Michael E. Gordons, both in music and filmmaking. And wow. so the E helped me get through the five billion, but I still have to compete with the notable composer and filmmakers, Michael E. Gordon. Yeah, so. well, I, I compete <laughs> with. Um, there's a, a, an evangelist named Jack Graham. <laughs> there's a uh, baseball player that played in the twenties. There's a mass murderer. Um, <laughs> no, there is. I'm not making that up. Go with so the baseball player. There, yeah, there's, I'll go with the baseball player. John, who are you competing with? I'm competing with a uh, a children's photographer, a Danish, somebody that's famous in in Denmark. I don't know who. I don't know what he does. But, you know, not just because of the way I spell my name, it's a little differently. And so I don't have a lot of competition, which is good. John spells his name Pedersen, P-E-D-E-R-S-E-N, as the famous bassist that worked with Oscar Peterson many years, Niels, Orst- Niels Orsted Henning Pedersen. Yes. Anyhow, Michael, good to have you. Um, Thank you, John. Folks, for those of you who don't know Michael, please go to Michael's website. Obviously, it's Michael Gordon, but it's michael-gordon.com, and we'll talk about that again before we button things up later um and here's a tidbit to that i couldn't get michaelgordon.com because he has a resume posted that's what the michael site is it's permanent that's a shame (laughs) it's amazing but anyway michael you know again everybody we have on here you know we always say oh your work is so amazing and it's so good you know how it is but um you know, this is more of this podcast and, and, and no, you know, I mean, we've had a lot of great people on, but we've had some very, very dear friends uh, and people that I respect. Like you, you can't believe like guy, you know, guy talent. Michael is right up there in that ilk. So it's a pleasure to have you. Um, Michael, tell us just a little bit about yourself, if you don't mind. I know I, I, I know you well enough to know that this isn't what you like to do that much, but maybe you can just give us a little, um, you know, short bio on what you do, why you like to do it. I'll you know, try my any, best. anything you want to tell us. Yeah, let's see. I've been photographing for somewhere close to about 30 years. Um, 
In fact, I'm looking right now at the pay stub. My very first dollar earned professionally in photography was in May of 1997. That's the first time I made money for my work, but I didn't become a professional photographer until full-time professional photographer until some some years later. Uh, I work exclusively in the natural landscape. Um, I work with both a large format view camera and a Nikon D850 system. Um, I have been teaching workshops for about 17 or 18 years now. Um, I show my work as often as I can in uh, exhibitions and gallery settings, which, of course... You've been in some really, really prestigious places, too, by the way. Well, thanks. I try my best. I try and, you know, the the only way you can um, uh, move your work and get some eyes on it is to get it physically in a space where it can be seen. Obviously, the, yep. uh, the Internet is much greater competition. But, uh, um, yeah, that's that's and, and for me, the primary emphasis of my work because of how long I've been doing it and who I've been influenced by Ansel Adams and many of the West coast masters printing has always been a vital component for my work. A photograph doesn't in theory for me, a photograph doesn't exist until I have a physical print of it that I can hold and I can actually hang and should show people that you do your own printing. Yes, for uh, I've been engaged with uh, wide format inkjet printing for just about 20 years. So I, I engaged early yep. and I spent a ridiculous amount of hours testing, printing, varnishing, doing all sorts of ridiculous things in the past. And of course, um, inkjet printing is significantly easier today than it was back then. But uh, mm-hmm. yeah, for me, for a little bit of a that'll be fun. Printing is a, a very important uh, part of my work, and still remains so. And we mentioned the book before we started, and even to that end, it's like I a lot of people have taken their work as, as digital as it can get, and I want to buck the digital trend, and I want to keep my work in print for as long as I can. Nice. Michael, whatever came of that project that I know we were in Death Valley and you were getting ready to do a video for a Japanese company. Did that ever happen? Oh, yeah, that was uh, uh, I actually oh, I think that's been it's been a while. It's been it may be seven years now, but I don't think that's correct. Yeah, I, there was a I was a on camera expert for a Japanese company called NHK. They are basically the public television, Japanese public television equivalent of PBS. Mm-hmm. And they do do a program called, uh, holy cow, the name is escaping me, I'm sorry, but they hired me to be their Death Valley guide and location scout. And when I met with the uh, producer and director, I don't know why, but he thought that I was engaging to the degree that he felt I needed to be in his film. So he actually made me one of the on-camera experts in his film, and I've not counted how many total minutes of airtime they gave me, but they made me 
appear like a virtual celebrity, but uh, it's all Japanese. So <laughs> I've, had it, I've had it translated or at least the portions I'm in so I can understand what's being said because the only thing I can understand is what I'm saying. But yeah. I actually feel like that adds uh, impact uh, to the film. And in fact, it's I, I think it's a very well done film. Unfortunately, I don't think there's a way for me to direct your listeners to it because I've never found a copy online. Um, yeah. But uh, I do have snippets on my Death Valley PhotoTours.com website for those who are interested in seeing it. Oh, wow. Yeah, and photo I, I didn't even know you had that site. i got to find it. Yeah, Death, oh, no, we'll, we're, I'm sure we'll talk about that later at some point. But, yeah, I think I have three snips from the film on there. But I feel like they gave me a total of somewhere around 20 minutes of uh, – Total camera time, and um, it was actually really, uh, really um, interesting thing to be involved with. And and they were not looking to exploit Death Valley; they were looking to show the true uh, magnificence and um, remarkable natural history about the place. And I feel like they really did a good job of that. Yeah, and, and for our listeners, and we're going to say this again, but if anybody wants to go to Death Valley photographically, you need to go with Michael. Michael does some workshops down there with Guy, Guy Tal. We'll talk about that at the end here. And I have to tell you, Michael knows the history of every rock in that place, and he'll get you to places that, you know, the average workshop leader doesn't know. And you won't go into areas that are sensitive and and uh, and, and, and take any chances and destroying anything down there because Michael's just the expert. He's the Death Valley guy. I mean, he's it. I I I, I actually I don't know. I guess I probably never told you this, Michael, but I stopped going to Death Valley because I can't compete with you. And I don't mean that in a bad way. You're, you're it, man. And, and uh, I'm, you know, I, I, I just can't compare to what you do down there. And, and I and if I can't do it that good, I don't want to do it. And I'm not. I like I I love going there, but I don't go there to lead workshops anymore. Well, well, you did tell me that, Jack, and it's, I'm I'm both flattered and well, uh, it's, it's, I, I don't know what the other word is, but I wish you wouldn't stop. Uh, and the, the check is in the mail. You'll get it. Uh. <laughs> it's just my angle on a place that I love, you know. But uh, you know, it's apples and oranges. And you don't go. I mean, you, that's your place. You you don't go to you know. You're not up in the upper peninsula of Michigan. You're not in the East no. Coast. You're not Death Valley and, and the desert's your thing, you know? Yeah, if, if, if I can, maybe I should. I, I realize I kind of left that out of my, my bio. Um, uh, I, I, I'm often, or it is often noted that I don't travel a lot. Um, meaning I don't travel the world and I don't travel throughout the United States. I travel the West pretty constantly. Right. Uh, but uh, I am I am what I'd like to think the Mojave Desert photographer. And so I made no a very deliberate decision some years ago in my work that I wouldn't even attempt to compete, if that's the correct word. But I wouldn't encroach on any – there was no need for me to encroach on anybody else's space or habitat when I had my own that was completely uh, undervalued and unexploited by other photographers. So I made a life decision to deliberately pursue Western deserts as the the MO of my work. and. Sure, sure. You know, and in doing so, it, 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 it 
well, I mean, I, I suppose I was already a changed person when I made that decision, but the desert changes people, and that's why we have biblical prophecy and stories that come from the desert. Yep. And so it, it, it changed me. No doubt. Yeah, it does. So, Michael, you know, you shoot both color and monochrome, black and white, um, and, and you do both extremely amazingly well. What what's your in your head what's the kind of the difference between those two for you especially especially shooting the deserts uh appreciate that john that's a good question um so the way i define for myself which i think is a, a useful learning tool and it's what i do uh, how i relate this to my students um how I react to something in front of me is the, the dictate for the, the medium I'm going to use. Um, so if I respond to color, that's the there's no further consideration necessary. I have to photograph in color. Um, if I am responding to light, form, line, design, all sorts of other things that are uh, uh, extract of color, I don't even need to consider color as the component. And that pretty much drives the decision making. Um, so for me, much of my work is black and white. I like to portray myself as the black and white photographer, but I'm human. I have full color vision. I have no color blindness, and we live on an inherently colorful planet. And of all places, Death Valley uh, is the most difficult place for me to pursue black and white photography in our deserts because it's an immensely colorful place. Uh, but otherwise, I tend to perceive the deserts as monochrome and I tend to perceive spring and fall colors as color because that's what I respond to. So yeah, re response to color means it's color response to everything else means it's black and white. Yeah. And, and as we were talking about earlier, you shoot color on your uh, Nikon digital and then shoot uh, black and white on your view cameras, right? That's correct. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I shoot with the Chamonix 4x5 view camera system, and I work with the Nikon D850. And, yeah, when I shoot black and white, it's I immediately or almost immediately reach for the view camera and film. Uh, however, I shoot plenty of things with the digital camera that are then converted. But what the view camera gives me for those listeners and yourselves that are familiar with it is camera movements enable me to achieve certain perspectives and certain aesthetics with the resulting image that cannot be gotten with Photoshop or Lens Baby or any other tools. So that the size of the format and the move, camera movements enable me to get a look that I'm really after. Which goes back to the old adage of uh, getting it right in camera first. Absolutely. But on the, on the other hand, I am not the person who says that uh, it has to be right in the camera or it's, you know, it's not right on. I freely crop and do everything after that needs to be done. But by and large, I'm trying to, I'm trying to adhere to something akin to the zone system. What I want to come out is close to what is going in. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I actually uh, believe that even when you're shooting in color, you can apply certain aspects of the zone system to color work as well. I think it's ignored because people think the zone system only pertains to black and white photography. And sure, yeah, you know, what kind of film, Mike, are you using on your view camera these days? 
So I have uh, lots in the freezer. Um, my primary film of choice is uh, both. Well, they're both discontinued, which were the Fuji Pro 160S. Mm-hmm. It became a different name at some point. Maybe it was just 160. I forgot. But I have a freezer full of Pro 160S and Fuji Astia. That was the portrait film. I love that film. That's discontinued. I still have quite a few sheets of Velvia. It is not my preferred film, but I have a lot of a lot of that in the freezer. In fact, a guy gave me a lot a few couple of years ago. But uh, yeah, so I, I think I probably have a lifetime supply of uh, color film in my freezer. Um, and you know, black and white, I shoot Ilford Delta, and that is still a current emulsion, and it's readily available. I tell you, I tell you a funny story. I had had a client one time, and I was showing him an image of something that we were photographing, and he says, "He says, man, he says, did you process that?" <laughs> said, well, yeah. He goes, "Well, you know, that's a he says that that's a little 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 more processed than what we saw here." I said, "Well, it might be a little bit." He goes, well, you know, he says, I just switched from film to digital, and I'm very, very careful on what I do. I said, really, what kind of film did you use? He goes, Velvia. Yeah. <laughs> I go, and your point is what? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah. that, that film was great film, and it, it processed into film. I mean, it was it was beautiful stuff. Yeah. Anyhow, I, I, when you want to buy film, you still have – you can still get – Obviously, the Ilford and the Astia, but I mean, you, you, are you buying any um, of the discontinued stuff? Are you looking for it? Can you still find it if you want to? Oh, oh yeah. Yeah, I actually have uh, eBay alerts for film. Mm-hmm. Um, surprisingly, um, I, you see two crazy things. One is they're either ridiculously overpriced or you see those ads where they've actually taken the sheets out of the box and laid them out on a table. Oh, <laughs> Oh. <laughs> I love those, but now oh. you know uh, used film, uh, or I should say, expired emulsions on eBay is still fetching way too much money. All of the yep. fusions, uh, yep. but if they, if they come in at the right price, I'll buy them. But yep. uh, I haven't made a film buy from eBay for quite some and, time. And, and, and folks, again, Michael is the, the Mojave Desert. I, I have a question for you that I think I don't know. If, I think I've asked you before. Maybe I have it. So when I go to Death Valley, you know, after going to some of the areas that, you know, Mount Rainier and places that have, you know, the iconic stuff kind of right in front of you and the semi-iconic stuff. When I go to Death Valley, it takes me it takes me maybe a day, maybe a day and a half, maybe longer to get kind of in the zone to be productive down there. And sometimes, not that I, sometimes I just like to be there and I don't care if I'm productive, but it's, it's not the easiest place to just drop into, take a camera out and, and I mean, you really have to learn to see down there, I think. Right. And yeah, you're looking yeah. for patterns and textures and, you know, you don't have the, you know, it's not 8 million icons down there to photograph. You, you have to, spend time could you go into that a little bit mike yeah i'd love to thanks um well so to be sure you know you can go on to the um 
onto the photo forums or Facebook or whatever and find the repetitive photographs that come from Death Valley. And I know you know what those are. Yep. Mud cracks. Mud cracks make up a yep. lot of those. Yep. Um, bad water makes up a lot of those. The sand dunes. So, you know, on the one hand, you do have a um, uh, repertoire of work from which um, – uh, you know, you can copy, which is, from my reckoning, the way that most people do it. They already know what they need to photograph when they land in Death Valley because they've seen it on Instagram, so they know pretty much where to go and how to do it. In fact, I can I can name some key locations that I repeatedly drive by in Death Valley that have been made famous by Instagram, and I always see people hovering at those yeah, locations. Yeah, and, and, and GPS coordinates. Yeah. Yeah, so there's that way to pursue Death Valley photography. And then the other way, which is surely the um, least efficient way to pursue photography in Death Valley, is to just slow down and to feel the place and let it come to you. And that's how it works for me. Granted, it's my virtual backyard. I spend more than 90 days every year inside the park, so I have... Uh, gained a familiarity and I have a familiarity with the park that enables me to um, uh, get that feeling back very quickly. And so I can be very productive in Death Valley on almost any visit, irrespective of, of light or weather, because I, I know the place so well. Um, but that is, that's admittedly the, the harder way to pursue it, is to, to, to say, I have no agenda, I have all the time in the world, and I'm going to wait for this to come to me, this idea to come to me, so I know how to portray this place. Um, and so for me, I'm not looking to do what's been done. I'm looking to paint a complete um, story of the experience of being in these vast and desolate places, especially. You're still, find, you're still finding areas you haven't been in after being there 90 days. Well, it's the park is the size of Delaware. It's 4,300 square miles. And if I were to drive from, say, the northwest corner, the Eureka Dunes, to the southeast corner, the Ibex Dunes, that drive would take me about five hours. So imagine if you're, you know, if you're just a casual national park visitor who maybe has a one week for the park each year, even if they had that much time, it's going to take you a long time to learn to get to know a place of that size, if that's what your goal is. And for me, the place is not about the photographs. The place is about the experience. It's about my spiritual connection to it. It's about learning every facet and knowing every corner that I can. And I feel that that depth of experience invites the photographs to me. And if they're not there, that's fine. They will be there the next day or the next time out. I don't need to force anything, but the photographs find their way to me. They do. They do for sure. Michael, you know, I've, I've looked at your work for a long time and I've always admired it. And the, the one thing that, that keeps resonating with me as I look through your body of work is that all of your images seem very thoughtful. They're very well thought out. They're very well connected to what it is you're shooting. And I think you alluded to it a little bit where you feel you're, you're, you're trying to convey the experience and you're really present in that moment out there in nature uh, taking these images. But that stuff really comes through in all of your images. 
I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank yeah, you. It's I, you know, and and so it's a, that's another reason for folks out there to to slow down and get in tune with kind of what's inside of you. Yeah. And yeah. don't don't worry about all the technical details and the gear and all that kind of stuff. You need to be a part of the experience and that experience will then transcend into your images, I think. Yeah. You know, and if you're if if you're having a good experience and you have um and you have good ideas, good photographic ideas, then the gear and everything else just falls into place. But I think people move the the gear and all the other considerations to the forefront and they never consider the the depth of the the photograph. Um and and you know, um to that John, I think um I think you know having a, a film background, especially one with a view camera. Um, and, you know, for viewers who don't know, with a view camera, I can't hold the view camera up and look through it. It's not a point-and-shoot camera. So what that teaches a view, view camera operator, you learn how to compose in your mind's eye, as it were. So I, I'm determining the composition and the frame with my brain. I don't need to use a camera at all. And so when I start getting a feeling for a particular idea that may be in front of me, I put the bag down, I sit down, I walk around, I think a lot about the idea I want to convey, and I take as many minutes as I need to understand how I need to compose that as carefully as possible to convey that particular emotion, message, whatever it may be. And I think having a large format background really makes a significant difference. And, for, and even for digital cameras, digital camera users, it's a really easy thing to do. And it's what we teach in the workshops. Put your camera down, put your bag down, see with your mind's eye and think about what's in front of you and what you want to say for it with it before you ever start pointing the camera at it. You'll have a really good idea about what that is. And when you hoist the camera, you know exactly what you need to do at that point. The editing has already occurred in your brain in advance. And don't you love, you know, when when a manufacturer brings a new camera out and they go, well, you know, you could shoot 11 frames a second with this camera. I look, I say, yeah, I don't sometimes shoot 11 frames a month or a week. You know, I mean, and, and, and the biggest piece of knowledge I try to tell people is, you know, they'll say, well, what can I do? You know, what should I do to be, you know, a better photographer? I said, it's really easy. Slow down. Yep. Slow down. Slow down. Honestly, I, I can't think of any aspect of life that is not uh, uh, benefited by slowing down. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And, yep. and yep. being present in the moment. Absolutely. So too often we're looking ahead to this, that, everything else. We're, yep. you know, very rarely are we just being right where we're at. Absolutely. And experience, Absolutely. just experience everything. Well, I think, I think one of your quotes, Michael, that I really like in, in describing yourself is uh, the intimate and easy to overlook is the focus of my work. I'm compelled by texture and form, the organic and the unnatural and the unusual and ephemeral. Listen to all those words. I mean, those are those are deep thinking words about how you approach your art. Appreciate that. Thank you, John. Yeah, yeah I, I think, you know, you, you probably see all those words in the photographs, too. Yes. 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 And, and, you know, and, and honestly, I mean, I, I'm um, 
Uh, I won't repeat the word that that Jack used before we started recording, but I, I don't feel like I'm in that place because, you know, as a photographer and as an artist, I feel like um, I'm constantly growing. And what I thought I knew yesterday was only partially true. And I'm still, you know, I, I still every day figure myself out more and more as an artist and about what my ideas are and what they should be going forward. Um, and so, I, you know, it took a long time to actually be able to to analyze my work and to be able to come up with some effective words for what I was doing, because it took a lot of years to understand that. And I think that's one of the hardest hurdles for photographers to overcome is what is the essence of their work you know there's travel photography collecting collecting beautiful photographs from beautiful places or pursuing your own art and what is the essence of your art and the only way you can get there is to spend a lot of time thinking about it and a lot of time doing it it's a art is a factor of time i keep saying yep Yep. You know, and 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 uh, just everybody wants to be. Yeah, I, I, you know, I guarantee you that if we had um, Ansel on this podcast, or if we had Minor White, or if we had, you know, even some of the people now who are extremely well known, the Art Wolves of the world, and that ilk, I guarantee you, they'll tell you they're still still learning. They're still, oh yeah, oh, yeah. still growing. When you you think you're done, you're finish you're, you're you might as well you know go yep. take up go go make birdhouses so yep. I, I just get, and, get and, and you know to to mention ansel um you know think about this he he is now a household name um i don't think you know there's probably few americans who don't know who is ansel adams or what he did but he, he was an overnight sensation after about 40-something years, right? He spent yeah. his life getting there. And for yeah. us, it just seems like he had a great idea and boom, he exploded on the scene. But he spent his life figuring out what he was doing. And it's really easy to look back at his over of work and to see to see that development through his work, through his entire career. Yeah. yeah. Michael, you mentioned printing. And... You know, I don't want to get into intricacies of that, but you, I, I also know that you do some printing if people want to have some prints made. Am I correct? That's correct, Jack. Yeah. Um, um, just tell us a little bit about what you like to print on and what you use. And and uh, sure. one of these days I'm going to send you a couple of files and maybe I can get you to do a couple of prints for me. I'd love to, Jack. Um, yeah, I, I use uh, Epson printers. I always have. Um, since the very beginning. What's and, your favorite printer? Do you have just one or do you have a couple? Oh, I have a few. Uh, actually, when I moved into my new house, though, I had to uh, retire one of them because I, I had no space for it. Oh, no. So I had to retire one of my white formats. But my primary my primary workhorse, as they say, is my Epson 9890 sitting to my right here, 44 inches. And um, I constantly... Um, uh, uh, what do you call it? I constantly move around papers because the paper companies keep changing their stock and then I don't like what happens. But mm-hmm. uh, uh, I print on both matte and satin slash glossy papers. My matte paper is Hanamule German etching. I love that paper. Um, you know, it's a heavy textured paper, but it suits mm-hmm. my black and white stuff really well. I like uh, Canson Edition etching rag. That's a matte paper. Canson makes great papers. They've I, been doing it for 
couple thousand years, I heard. Yes, sir. That's the thing. You know, if you're going to choose a paper, it's best to choose a traditional paper company who's been at it for hundreds of years. They're probably not going to screw things up, and Hanamule is the same. Um, Moab makes some great papers. Right now I'm printing with Moab Juniper Barita. It's a slightly warm-toned paper, but it's got a, a beautiful texture to it, beautiful hue. I love that one. Um, you know, papers have come so far. I, I remember, you know, t- 15, 20 years ago when the substrates were much more limited. And you may recall back then with inkjet yeah. printing, there was uh, bronzing and gloss differential, which affected many prints, right? So the gloss differential yeah. was, you know, where blank paper, where white paper white was, you had no gloss, where the ink went down was too much gloss and bronzing was that sort of, sort of uh, you know, bronze hue that would come off of it. These papers are all so good today. We have so many. We have so many Barita papers, so many copies papers and all of them are really quite good um, well, I'm not a printing far from a printing expert like you and and I you know when I people ask me about that once in a while and I tell them the papers like you know it's like film you know obviously I don't shoot film anymore but when I used to shoot film I stayed with the film I knew how it, I knew what it was going to do I knew I knew how I could what I needed to do to make the film you know do yeah. it and papers the same way. I think you should. People should get used to a paper they like and learn how it. Yeah. yeah. And to that end, if I can do a little promotion here, please do. Uh, you know, the problem with trying uh, multiple papers, of course, is that you're beholden to what are known as the canned profiles provided by the paper manufacturer, the free profiles provided by the paper manufacturer, which may not necessarily work the best for your printer and that batch of paper you got. Um, uh, traditionally, there were only one or two companies uh, that made custom profiles for printmakers. Uh, about 10 years ago, uh, when I was, I was really wanting to try lots of papers and I was doing a lot of different types of printing for different people, it became very expensive to profile paper after paper, 100 bucks a pop. So I decided to start a business, greatprinterprofiles.com. And oh, really? I do custom printer profiles uh, for myself and for my clients. We all get the same uh, techniques uh, on our profiles. So, yeah, I I, uh, be, you know, I bought the equipment. And, of course, I was already experienced with profiling and creating profiles with uh, raster image processors and stuff. So I had most of the techniques under my belt, but I was really unhappy paying $100 per, per, per profile. So I decided to buy more software and learn a little bit more and start generating all my own profiles. And then I just turned it into a business to, to help other photographers out, other printmakers out. Yeah, and it's crazy. Today, I, I um, after 10 years, I have made profiles for skis, surfboards, lampshades, um, cooking tiles, like things you put on your stove to put a dirty spoon on. It's amazing what you can uh, image onto today. And so I've, pro- <laughs> I've provided profiles for all sorts of industries and all sorts of printing applications. That's crazy. So, you know, folks out there, um, there will, um, if you go to Michael's site, He's got a he's got a link to this custom printer profile stuff. So if you guys want more information, go check out his website, which you need to do anyway. But go look at the uh, custom printer profiles. That's a pretty unique thing, Michael. That's yeah. That's I think fantastic. today 
maybe three three or four businesses nationally that uh, that are offering the service, and mine is the most reasonably priced. I think. Yeah. I think. Yeah. So kind of kind of going back to to what you like to shoot. And I hate to put people on the spot like this, but what you know, where is where is maybe your ultimate favorite location, either in Death Valley or elsewhere to photograph? And if, and if you don't want to tell us to keep the riffraff out, yeah, I yeah. get it. Yeah, yeah, you can say pass. Um, no, no, I mean it's it's well, I mean, I, yeah, I, I don't think I would tell you like the specific spot, but in fact, um, you know, there are a couple of well, here I'll give a really obvious one. Mesquite Dunes in Death Valley. So for for those who have never been to Death Valley, Mesquite Dunes are positioned in central Death Valley. They are the most accessible sand dune complex in Death Valley. You can park in the parking lot and be on sand in 30 seconds. Um, granted, it's a well-photographed location. There are hundreds of visitors to the dunes each day. There are easy ways to avoid footprints and avoid visitors. But I'll tell you, I can't tell you how many times I, how, how many, how many hours, how, how many nights I've slept on those dunes, how many hours I've spent photographing them, and, and how many days I've watched the sun rising and setting over the dunes. And still, it's one of the most um, um, exciting feelings and experiences that I have. There's just something about it. I don't, I don't know. I think it's a human nature for sand. It's like the kid in the sandbox thing. I don't know. It is. <laughs> I'm kind of the same way when we get around the ocean. That's kind of my happy place, and yeah, and I could just live on the ocean the whole time. Yeah, but so, I think any any dune field is awesome. And then you know, in general, it's the Mojave Desert. It's where I feel most. It's odd. It, where I feel most at home is in barren, desolate basins, and I think it's because. It, uh, it it brings me some humility. It puts me in, in the right space and allows me to pursue my work the way I need to do it. You uh, get up to Joshua Tree often? You know, I used to spend a lot of time there, Jack, but uh, admittedly, the Instagram and Los Angeles have changed that park so much. And I, I would ask. Yeah. So, you know, it's it, the... the, the uh, incidents that you've heard about arising from Joshua Tree during the shutdowns and stuff with, you know, right. people killing trees and graffiti and so forth. Those are a lot of the things that have driven me away from the park over the last few years. Mm. So I, I spend a lot less time there today. Any other parks or look, not specific locations, but areas that you like to go to other than Death Valley? You know, I, I'm 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 reluctant to say this name, but I'm going to because it, there's so many barriers to easy access and use anyway. Mojave National Preserve to me is one of the most spectacular places. It's uh, basically for those who know Southern California geography. It's a triangular-shaped wedge between the Colorado River, I-15, and I-40. It's thousands of square miles. I don't know where it ranks in the National Park uh, uh, unit, um, uh, you know, which number it is. Death Valley is number five in parks. I think uh, size, that is. Uh, You know, four parks in Alaska are larger. Death Valley is the largest park in the lower 48. I believe Mojave Preserve may come in somewhere uh, around 8, 9, or 10 in 
and size. The difference is there is zero infrastructure in Mojave National Preserve. There are no accommodations. There's no dining. There's no gasoline. There's nothing. Um, so that's what keeps people away, and that is what brings me there. <laughs> yeah. um, and, and I have a long history there. And really, it's it's the sort of place um, that's ideal for somebody who is comfortable in the Mojave Desert, off-road, with no cell signal, with no access to goods or services, because that's what it's like being there. So you really need to be a self-sufficient explorer and adventurer to properly uh, photographically utilize Mojave National Preserve, but it's an incredible place for me. Um, it's not as visually uh, drop-dead, stunning, and obvious like Death Valley. It's quieter, it's more subtle, but the running into people is a rarity in the preserve. And the big bonus is that much of the preserve is higher elevation, so it's doable even through the summer if you can handle you know low 100-degree temperatures. But, uh, yeah, for me, that's one of the best places in the California desert. If I remember right, I think I was out there two or three times. The spring wildflowers can be amazing there. Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, I think there's a fair amount of uh, – there's some there's some springs there. You can find them. Just look for green, right? And there's that's where the water pops up and – it's, yeah. it's, it's a cool place, you know. It's a, it's a, it's cool a fantastic place. place, but, yeah, you do have to be self-sufficient. In fact, that's why I've never offered really tours or workshops in the preserve because it's not it's not so easy and obvious for photographers. They need to work harder, and they need to expose themselves a little bit more to the elements, yeah. to speak. Yeah. 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 Yep. Terrific. Terrific. Yeah, well, anyhow, you know, Michael, I, uh, before we uh, <clears throat> put a – Put a nail in things here. Excuse me. Um, I know that you've got some things coming up in Death Valley with Guy. Maybe you want to tell our folks about that. And again, everybody, um, if you if you have any uh, any question about going to Death Valley with Michael, put him aside because there is nobody better. Mike, tell tell us about uh, what you have coming up. Uh, yeah. Thank you, Jack. Um, yeah, you know, uh, listeners can go to my website. And by the way, it's michael-gordon.com. And just click on the photo workshop slash tours page, and they'll find all uh, all sorts of information on upcoming dates. But, uh, yeah, you know, Guy Tall, I think he was one of your first, maybe one of your number one, number three, something like that. Yeah, he was in there. You know, he's yeah. just... <clears throat> So, you know, Guy and I have been friends for almost 20 years. We've been teaching together for about 17, and we have— That's how I met you, you know? That's that's right. That's right. I remember our evening uh, sitting around outside in the snow. The snow was coming down, and we're sitting out on, like, the chairs that you'd sit in your backyard and— that's how you do it. Trying to keep warm with a, uh, some adult beverages at the time, which I don't deal with anymore. But it was a great night. And I, I remember I had to be up at North Lake at like six o'clock in the morning, and and I think we probably went to sleep about two. Probably, yeah. Yeah. Was yeah. it still snowing? And Harley, yeah, it was. As a matter of fact, yeah. Har- Harley was there. Harley, Harley. Yeah. Yeah, that was. I think it was uh, sixteen or seventeen degrees the next morning. Yeah. I, I I recall distinctly the uh, portrait I made of our little group there. Yeah. So, 
Yeah, so, you know, Guy and I teach the visionary uh, photography workshops together, and we have a couple of dates coming up, December and February. However, they're both sold out, but people can uh, ping us uh, to be on the wait list. Uh, There's probably no chance for the December wait list, but if people are interested in the February workshop with Guy, uh, just ask for the wait list. Otherwise, you'll see other dates on the calendar. Oh, yeah, and I should mention, uh, I'm sure your listeners might be familiar with the Out of Chicago Conference uh, Company. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so they're doing uh, the Out of Death Valley Landscape Conference uh, January 20 through 24 of next year, and I'm one of the invited uh, speakers and, and instructors. That should be pretty exciting. I'm looking forward to that. And, um, yeah, and if anybody's interested in a, um, a private photo tour of Death Valley, they're not group events unless you want to bring friends along. They're private photo tours in Death Valley National Park, and you can just go to deathvalleyphototours.com for more information. Terrific. Outstanding. Terrific. John, you have anything else for I Mike? don't. Michael, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show today. It was a pleasure talking to you guys. Thanks so much for inviting me. Yeah, it, it, it took a while, but we finally did <laughs> yeah, it. We've been trying for yeah. six months. Well, well, I, I appreciate your patience. Yeah. yeah so well, let's, uh, get through, uh, let's get through 2020 and move on and hope that uh, the world comes back to <laughs> kind of halfway the way it was. I'd be happy for that. It's going to happen. There, There's no alternative. Yep, I yeah, totally agree with you. Well. Yeah, so, totally agree with you. So, folks, I will, um, if you visit our website, wetalkphoto.com, I'll post up some show notes and links to Michael's websites. Um, uh, and any other information about Michael, it'll be a short description and bio, some of his work. But please go visit his website. Um, and if you have any suggestions or comments, you can always drop us a note at wetalkphoto at gmail.com. And I think with that, we're done. Awesome, guys. I think it was a pleasure having you, Michael. And uh, I'll be in touch. And one of these days, uh, I'm going to take your workshop. So there. Yeah, likewise. Awesome. Well, it'd be, it'd be great to meet you, John. And Jack, I'd love to see you again. It's been a while. Yeah. Yeah, we, uh, you're looking good, by the way, man. Well, you know, yeah. I know yeah. I have to. Honestly, Jack, when I saw your 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 portrait photo popped up, I looked at you and I thought, man, he looks like he erased ten to fifteen years. Well, you know, I, I just had a birthday last week, and, and yeah, uh, <clears throat> you know, it, it's just uh, one of those things. But it's uh, you know, trying to trying to prepare for the next number of years to be able to do what I want to do. And yeah. you, you have no choice. And that, well, congratulations, man. It takes commitment. Yeah. Well, it's good. Good to hear you, Michael. We'll be in touch. And, uh, and thank you so much for being here, folks. Thank you all for listening and we'll see you next time. All right, Thanks guys. Bye.